Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Big Tent, one of the public affairs shows here at Radio Boise. I am one of your co-hosts, Jen Schneider. I'm here with Corey Cook. And our guest today is Jillian Maroney, and we're all from the School of Public Service at Boise State University. So we're going to talk with Jill in the uh, next part of our program today about a project she's been working on called the Treasure Valley Water Atlas. Uh, But first, we are going to talk about water and cities on an international level. Um, If you've been following the news the last couple of weeks, you have probably heard of Day Zero. Uh, This is the case where Cape Town, South Africa, which has almost 4 million people now, is set to potentially run out of water sometime this summer, unless they get some very big rainstorms coming here in the rainy season in May and June. Uh, And so we have, for the first time really in um, human history that we're aware of, a major metropolitan area may actually run out of water. They're talking about literally turning the taps off of the city water source. Absolutely. On day zero, you can go and open up your taps and no water will come out. So right now, uh, they are rationing water. It's about 13 gallons of water per person per day. That may sound a lot. Not, uh, sound like a lot. So you could probably use 13 gallons when you're camping to clean yourself and clean your dishes and cook some food. Uh, but over time, it's probably not enough to sustain a good, strong water system, good public health system. And experts there are really concerned that we're going to see a big increase in waterborne diseases. And already folks are showing up at hospitals with signs of that as reservoirs dip to uh, increasingly dangerous levels. So this is an an interesting example of um, an area that is no stranger to drought, but uh, also an area that is starting to see really different uh, weather patterns as a result of climate change. So when you talk to folks in in that part of South Africa, they say that they just cannot count on rains coming when they normally come anymore. Corey, you're somebody who works on cities and natural resources. What does this case make you think about? So about a quarter of cities around the globe are water stressed. And uh, you know, a lot of us who study cities think of cities as a solution to climate change and look at the, the, the urbanization around the globe as uh, a way of combating lim- climate change, reducing the, the use of energy and, 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 and the carbon footprint by moving people into cities. Um, it, we're projecting by 2050 there'll be 30, I'm sorry, 3 billion more people living in cities than there are today. And again, a lot of urbanists think that's a, a really positive thing. I think the, the water shortage, though, is, is something that isn't always part of that equation. At the same time, you have 3 billion more people moving into cities. The projection is about a billion of those will, will face uh, si- significant water shortages. And so these notion of water scarcity around the globe, not just in the developing world, but I mean, the uh, city of Tokyo is a, is a city facing um, you know, this, this water scarcity and this, and this stress. Um, is, is, is pretty fascinating. And um, we look in the U.S. context, um, a lot of thinkers are now saying that the, that the growth of urban areas is going to depend on their access to water. And so you look at places like the Treasure Valley, which I know we're going to talk about in the, in, the, in the second and third segments today, and wonder what the dro- growth trajectory will be. And water is going to be a significant component of that in a way that I think wasn't necessarily part of the calculation uh, you know, 50 years ago. And so far, it seems like we've been able to manage our way out of these problems. So if you look at a city like Las Vegas or even a city like Phoenix, of course, those are really water-constrained environments, huge population growth over the last few decades. Uh, But water managers have been pretty proactive, getting out in front of conservation programs, for example. And so far, they've sort of staved off disaster. 
Uh, why hasn't Cape Town or why aren't other cities able to do that? Well, there, there, there are two issues that, that you see in cities that I think are related, but, but se- somewhat separate, right? One is the physical shortage of water, and that's uh, obviously related to climate change and, and these droughts that we're seeing around the, the, the planet. But the other is uh, inadequate infrastructure and being able to get water to where it needs to be. And Los Angeles is a great example of a region that faces a physical water shortage, but because of the infrastructure, actually are, are, are relatively secure in terms of their water. If they just depended on the Los Angeles basin, I think we'd be pointing to Los Angeles as an incredibly insecure place, but because of the, the deep investment in water infrastructure, um, you know, Los, again, conservation is certainly needed, and the, and the droughts in California in the recent years, obviously notwithstanding, but they're certainly nowhere near a, a, a day zero when the, when the, when the taps are going to be turned off. And they've been able to forestall that, I think, for th- three months now. It's been, they've been able to push back the date, and most recently, I think they pushed it back by another week, but it's, it's pretty remarkable to have this intense conservation effort in order to stave off another week. Mm-hmm. Um, it, again, it's, it's um, I think, pretty shocking and you know, certainly something I haven't seen as an urbanist uh, city dealing with this, this drastic a, a measure. And like I said, so much depends on this rainy season actually being rainy. I've read some analyses that said that policymakers there have agreed to call off day zero because of the negative implications mm. for tourism, for example. Nobody is wanting to visit. That has major economic impacts. Mm. So I think everybody's holding their breath and crossing their fingers, waiting to see what's going to happen. That's, that's actually pretty remarkable, right, when you think about the, the, the economic consequences. And, and again, obviously, we think in terms of the residents and the agriculture and those pieces. But yeah, I think the Certainly, the message you get in a, on a day zero is, yeah, why would why would tourists want to travel to this place? Certainly, after I think what, what it is, J, July sixteenth now is the new is the new day zero date. Um, I can imagine that's devastating to the local economy. You, you mentioned uh, Los Angeles as sort of an example of good infrastructure and good planning, but I bet some people listening have uh, read the book Cadillac Desert right. and are, or maybe have seen the film Chinatown, yeah. uh, and they're aware of the deep conflicts and sort of violent history that undergirds the building of that infrastructure. So it'll be uh, interesting to see what kinds of fights develop moving forward if we have multiple droughts or multiple dry years, dry year on dry year, and see how we handle that. Well, I think, again, that's another area that, um, you know, not to just promote our our college, but we've got uh, faculty who are studying that issue of, of, you know, global scarcity is brought about largely by climate change, but other factors as well, particularly in the developing world, and what that means in terms of global conflict. And um, you're exactly right. You don't have to look too far in the distant past to find some of these things emerging. But increasingly, these are going to be the sources of, of global conflict. I wonder what it means for um, mid-sized or smaller cities that maybe don't have the resources to do the kind of planning or to build the kind of infrastructure that we're talking about. Well, I'm, and, and, and similarly, I wonder what it means for, for these growing areas like the Treasure Valley, right, which is you know, one of the fastest growing uh, metropolitan areas in the country. Yeah, the economy, obviously, in the Treasure Valley is booming. And, and uh, the question of water and the diversion of water and the various uses of water is, um, I think, underlaying most of our major policy discussions. It's not been on the front page of most newspapers, but I think, you know, whether it's planners or environmentalists or or urban designers are deeply concerned about what this means in terms of this growing metropolitan area. How do you meet these these multiple competing demands uh, with with the scarcity? It's really an interesting question of social learning too, right? So um, cities like Boise that don't currently have a water shortage, even though we live in sort of high country desert, can we look at what other cities have 
gone through and learn from them, learn from those policies, um, create the sort of organizations that have been created elsewhere? Or are we much more likely to simply react once the crisis hits? That's a great question, right? And it's, I would, I would uh, certainly point to not just as it relates to water infrastructure, but you know, mobility, right? How do we move people across the region and sort of what the, what the future of the Treasure Valley looks like, I think depends in large part about how we get in front of the challenges that a lot of people locally would certainly understand are coming. Uh, but as, you know, as the region explodes, how do you move people from place to place? How do you uh, address this, you know, economic, environmental, social sustainability in a booming, um, now booming metropolitan area? And water is one you know, clear component of that. Do you have a sense of uh, what sorts of um, things motivate planning efforts like that absent a crisis? I'm hoping Jillian's going to tell us in our second segment. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, this might be a good time to go to a break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Jill Maroney about the Treasure Valley Water Atlas. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Big Tent. I'm Jen Schneider. I'm here with my co-host, Corey Cook. We're from the School of Public Service at Boise State University. And we're here with one of our colleagues from Boise State, the School of Public Service. Her name's Jillian Maroney. She's a postdoctoral researcher. And she joined Boise State two years ago to work on a large project uh, called the Treasure Valley Water Atlas. Um, and she actually is the one who came up with the name and the idea for the project. So she's going to uh, talk to us today about the development of this website and uh, what started it, what it means, and where it's headed. So, hey, Jill, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. <laughs> you talk a little bit maybe just about your background so people know what, you, what kinds of things you work on. Of course, yeah. So um, my background is in planning, but also environmental science. And so I've kind of always worked at this interface between natural resources and humans and how we're using our natural resources as we develop. So I've worked on projects that deal with how we educate kids about natural resources, um, projects that look at using woody biomass for sustainable fuels and what that would mean for communities and starting supply, change and supply chains in different regions, and most recently farmland loss and how we're using water in the Treasure Valley. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Treasure Valley Water Atlas is? Great, yeah, so um, it's a we're in year five of a five-year-long project. We've been doing a lot of research with um, both biophysical scientists as well as social scientists, looking at how we use water in the Treasure Valley. So how does the Boise River move through the Treasure Valley, both from a biophysical perspective as well as from a management perspective? So who's using the water? How are they getting the water? Where does our water come from? and what that might look like in the future as we experience climate change, but also population growth. So we've been talking in the first segment about cities like Cape Town that is set to run out of water this summer if they don't have a good rainy season. We've been talking about Phoenix. We've been talking about LA, uh, Las Vegas. In what ways, other than sort of just sheer size, is water in the Treasure Valley different from those other types of cities? Right. So even though we're part of the West and the West is familiar with uh, water scarcity, Boise is actually in a really good location because we're at the head of our watershed. We're the first stop where the water comes from. And we've been really water rich in the past. We have a great snowpack where most of our water comes from. We have um, several large scale dams where we can store water so that, you know, when water is not melting later in the summer, we're still being able to apply it to our fields. Uh, we have a really full aquifer, um, maybe artificially full because of some of our water and irrigation practices. And so right now we're actually really water rich and um, we're not 
in a scarcity, but it might change in the future. What does that mean, uh, artificially full? Okay, yeah. So um, in the Treasure Valley, about 80% of our irrigation is flood irrigation, meaning people just flood it on their fields and the plants can't possibly take up as much water as we're putting on it. And so a lot of that infiltrates down into the aquifer. And so that keeps our aquifer full. Um, in southeastern Idaho, they've been having problems because they've allocated all their water, sucked it up, and now some of the um, groundwater users are have used too much water and they're not, and it, groundwater and surface water are connected, right? And mm-hmm. so um, they're having conflicts because they haven't been able to manage their groundwater and surface water together, and so they're putting calls on the water. We haven't seen that in the Treasure Valley yet because we are doing um, so much flood irrigation. So if we start conservation practices and stop flood irrigating, then our aquifer might start to drop, which then would put pressure on cities because they use mostly groundwater for drinking water. So it's a little tricky. Interesting. Yeah. So are these some of the issues that uh, you you talk about in the Treasure Valley Water Atlas? Definitely, yeah. So the Treasure Valley Water Atlas, um, it could actually be useful for a pretty wide audience from people who maybe are just moving here and don't understand where our water comes from or who is using our water to um, people like planners and policymakers who are looking to the future wondering what kind of challenges the Treasure Valley is going to experience. So we're looking at, you know, our snowpack and how that's changed over time. Um, land use change and what that means for water, who our current water users are and who might be water users in the future, uh, what climate change might possibly look like for us and how that will affect uh, water availability in terms of the timing of when water becomes available to us. So we know that snowpack, the behavior of snowpack is changing, right? Can you talk a little bit about what that means for the water system here? Yeah, definitely. So right now, um, we can, we've been able to rely on snowpack, like the snow melting in the spring, and we're able to capture all that water. Um, but like we saw last year in the Treasure Valley, a lot of water came off super early, and we had a lot of fl- flooding. And so what if that snowpack keeps coming off earlier and earlier? Well, then farmers aren't going to be able to use that water to water their crops in the summer because we need to um, flush a lot through before we're able to capture it and store it for later. So where does that water go then? Uh, well, that water that's managed for flood control is uh, released down to the Boise River and eventually ends up in Oregon and out mm-hmm. in the ocean. Well, some of it ends up in the aquifer, too, definitely, I'm sure. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good. And um, what about population growth? What, what, what are we looking at there when we talk about the way the valley's changing? Yeah, so right now we have a lot of ag land, but as people are moving here, that ag land is being converted into... Um, residential developments and so are those developments still using the same amount of water that the ag land was? Uh, that's one of the questions we've been asking. Um, it deserves more research but yeah what will more people mean more water use or will it change because right now our farmers use the majority of the water in the Treasure Valley. Yeah, I know growth is something a lot of Treasure Valley residents are very concerned about um, even if water isn't Uh, top of mind yet. It may be in the future. Okay, thank you so much. We're going to go ahead and cut away to a break. And when we come back, I think we're going to talk about um, Facebook. A little bit of a left turn. (laughs) Stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Boise, your news source for public affairs programs and diverse music from and for the Treasure Valley. Hey, welcome back to The Big Tent, uh, one of the public affairs radio shows here at Radio Boise. I'm Jen Schneider. I'm here with Corey Cook 
and Jillian Maroney from the School of Public Service at Boise State. We're going to finish up the show today by talking about whether or not we are leaving Facebook. Uh, <laughs> but first, we're going to talk a little bit more about water in the Treasure Valley, and in particular, the uh, issue of the change in land use in the Treasure Valley. So. If you've lived in the Treasure Valley for any length of time, you know that drive from Boise to Nampa looks a lot different than it did 30 years ago. Farmland now is being largely taken over by developments. And um, Jill, as the, uh, the project has been thinking about that, um, what role is land use change playing in water availability? It actually plays a huge and really interesting role because of the way our water law is written and interpreted in the Treasure Valley. So. Um, our water law, your water right, is attached to a parcel of land, but also a use. So as farmland transitions to, um, say, a housing development, that water is tagged for an agricultural use, so for irrigating. Um, so you can use it on your lawn, but we can't necessarily use it for drinking water or for recreation. So Unless you apply to have the use changed? Unless you would apply to have the okay. use changed, exactly. So there'd have to be um, some major changes. So right now, you can use 100% of the water that was available uh, for growing alfalfa to water your lawn. Um, as we see more and more farmland developed, there's going to be the same amount of water that is still tied up in ag. And so there'd have to be some major changes if we wanted to use that water in any other use in the Treasure Valley. I wonder too about the connection you were talking about earlier about the surface water sort of percolating down through the subsurface and into the groundwater. I know a lot of cities get their, uh, in the Treasure Valley, get their water from groundwater. Uh, do you anticipate seeing changes from that? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I know the cities right now aren't planning on acquiring surface water rights. They're still mainly thinking as they plan for the future using groundwater. And so if suddenly people were to stop irrigating and stop putting that water on the surface and letting it percolate down into the aquifer it would definitely change the way our aquifer is behaving. And maybe uh, in the distant future, the availability of groundwater to municipalities. Corey, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you aware of um, what other cities do when it comes to sort of preserving open space or undeveloped land? And there are a lot of different sort of versions in different communities around, around the United States, certainly with gro urban growth boundaries and, and, and certainly efforts along the, in those regards. Yeah, I think what's interesting, we, we did um, have done some surveys on this in the, in the Treasure Valley. We did an annual Treasure Valley survey, and, and I think actually it was probably the two of you who encouraged us to ask these questions, right? Um, to get a sense of what people uh, thought about farmland preservation. Is it an emerging issue in the Treasure Valley? And yet the connection is mostly to future food source. So we asked, so do you care about the, the loss of farmland? And it actually registered with, with people throughout the community. And then we asked sort of what the concerns were, and it wasn't about... Uh, the economic piece. It wasn't really about the historic component. It wasn't sort of the, really the cultural piece, but really the, the, the thing that people articulated, at least in our survey, was a concern about sort of future food production, which of course mm -hmm. is not just economic, it's also cultural. But it was interesting to see, we used very different um, uh, ways of wording questions to get a sense of what the public cared about at farmland preservation. But certainly there are a lot of efforts locally to, uh, whether that's reconstitute farmlands. Um, obviously, this is a very clear property rights state, and so the idea that people should be able to do with their property what they want is a, is a strong cultural value. At the same time, real concern about what that means as we develop 
uh, this sort of patchwork. And, and I'm sure you've seen all the, and probably have contributed to all the various, um, you know, Google map versions of the Treasure Valley that you can see that evolution take place. It is stunning to look at a lot of the green turned to gray on the Google Maps. Yeah, I know one of our colleagues in the Human Environment Systems Initiative at Boise State, Jody Brandt, uh, worked with some students a couple of summers ago doing surveys of citizens in the Treasure Valley, and 90% agreed that they wanted to preserve farmland for the reasons you talked about, food production, but also cultural mm -hmm. uh, heritage reasons and aesthetic reasons, right? It's nice to live in a place where there is some open space, where things are green. I talked to people um, about when I used to live on the Front Range in the Denver area, which is huge population growth there, but also strong easement programs preserving open space in that area. And it's really helped kind of preserve the character of those cities along the Front Range. I wonder about easements. What um, do you know anything about those, Corey? Would the, would those work in an area uh, like Southern Idaho? Yeah, Not sure. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how it relates to other state laws. Well enough to know. Yeah, it seems like it helps with that private property issue, but it requires right. a lot of resources. Requires a lot of the resources. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jen, are you leaving Facebook? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so here's the left turn that we're gonna make. So, uh, I need. <laughs> How's that for the transition? That I thought that was a pretty <laughs> subtle transition. <laughs> it's <was> very smooth. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd I thought I'd ask you, Corey. You're my contemporary, and Jill, you're our uh, millennial friend that's here today. <laughs> and so, if you've been following the news, you have seen that there's been some problems with Facebook securing their data. Um, a data firm named uh, Cambridge Analytica was able to scrape a lot of data off of Facebook and use it for some think nefarious purposes in the last election cycle, presidential election. And so I have a lot of friends who very much want to delete their Facebook accounts. And when I thought about it, I thought that is going to be impossible because I do a lot of professional work on Facebook. It's how my friends organize events. So I wonder, what do you two think? Well, I'm going to turn to Jillian because I use Facebook every time I get a new puppy <laughs> to get pictures of the litter. And other than that, um, I think the last thing I posted to Facebook was on my N almost nine-year-old was born. So I, I I think I have already deleted my Facebook without even knowing it. So, so Jillian. You'd, you'd be good with puppy book. That's all you right, need. Exactly. Okay. As long um, as I can get photos of I a newborn puppy, I'm good. Book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't delete my Facebook because where would I watch dog videos, right? <laughs> I actually went and, and downloaded all the data, right? You can like download what was on your profile and they um, have, you know, like kind of keywords that they've tagged you with and mine like I think like 50 of them had to do with dogs <laughs> and animal rights and mm. uh, the Pacific Northwest um I mean I could say I have mixed feelings I've thought about deleting my Facebook but I know I'm not going to delete my Facebook I just had a baby my family's all <laughs> over the country uh, my friends are all over the country it's a way to stay connected and so yeah I mean I don't want my data being shared, but I also feel like growing up in a generation where we got internet when I was like 10 years old, I mean, anything you put on the internet never leaves, right? And so I'm always kind of careful about what I put out there, and I assume that it'll be seen by people I went to high school with or, you know, my relatives or, you know, uh, people that are looking at me when I'm applying for a job. And so I try to be careful about what I put on there. Um, I, I think that it's kind of silly that everybody's acting so shocked. I mean, if you've ever been on Target.com and then you go to your Facebook and they're advertising the products you looked at, you know that they're mining your data, right? 
Well, and this is the work of modern political campaigns. So this is this is certainly new in the last decade or a bit from the last ten years or so. More longer than that, we would macro target populations, and now we target directly to people based on what they respond to. Modern political campaigns will will throw a hundred different messages at at folks and pay attention to what they click on and then just force feed you those messages. And so you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen this evolution of, of micro-targeting where campaigns have gotten more and more nuanced in their use of, frankly, social, social science research techniques to uh, run ex- essentially a series of uh, highly rigorous experiments where they're seeing what voters respond to. I mean, sadly, this is kind of the natural extension of that. Um, and yet, again, a significant privacy concerns but very much grounded in how campaigns are now targeting voters to see what is it directly that will appeal to you based on what we know that you like posting kids pictures of your kids. And so how do and we use that? And watching dog videos. And watching dog videos. And so how do we convince you how to vote in the 2018 primary election, right, using dog video? Although I wonder if this, is, this is, does seem qualitatively different that, that they um, used your data without telling you what they were using it for, and they scraped your friend's data. So on the one hand, I feel like, yeah, I knew I was in the matrix, but now that I want to leave it and can't... It's deeply... It's frustrating. Disconcerting, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The red pill or the blue pill? (laughs) What are you going to do? Facebook pill. All right. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you joining us today on The Big Tent at Radio Boise. I'm Jen Schneider. I'm here with Corey Cook, Jill Maroney, and we'll see you next week.